This has been a wonderful time in God's Word in the book of Ephesians. Thank you all for your phone calls or your encouragement after service, your text messages. It, it is a great joy to teach the Word here. This is a wonderful book. And when we come to chapter 5, he's talking about walking in love and walking in light and being filled with the Spirit and all these great truths. And at the end of chapter 5, he begins on the first of three different kinds of human relationships where this grace and this eternal love needs to be evidenced. And he begins with the family. And so we've been looking, this is part three this morning, at wives and husbands the mystery of Christ and the church. This is, I believe, in God's providence and is so timely considering the place that our nation finds itself in. And so amidst all the confusion as to what marriage is and what the duty of men and women are with each other and even within the church and within our families, that we need to honor this passage of Scripture. So the Apostle Paul, through the work of the Holy Spirit, is giving us truth that enables us to live in the context of three basic areas of human relationships. The first is between husband and wife. The second, which we're going to see in the weeks to come, is in Ephesians 6 with children. How we are as husbands and wives, how we are to raise a new generation, to train them up in the way they should go, as Proverbs 22.6 says, and when they're old, they won't depart from it. How are we as moms and dads to be involved in our children's lives? And then lastly, the employer-employee relationship. Scripture sometimes refers to it as masters and slaves, and we see it come right into the workplace. And then, we really, we could add a fourth arena to this, and this is in the area that probably the most familiar passage out of Ephesians 6 on the issue of spiritual warfare, in the arena of spiritual battle. Husbands and wives, children, the workplace, and then spiritual battle. And that'll conclude this wonderful epistle. So this morning we're going to look at part three, and for the sake of context, we'll read together Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 to 33. However, we're just going to look at the last few verses of this great chapter. Let's read together Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 to 33. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church." because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading 
of his marvelous word. By way of review, let's go back here to verses 22 to 24. There are three kinds of love that we're seeing in this passage, and each of them are, are profound. Each of them is a work of grace. Each of them takes the ministry of the Holy Spirit because we are not naturally wound up to do these things in and of ourselves. And at the first sight that we think we are, we end up falling. The first one was submissive love. We saw this here a few weeks ago that this is primarily the command of Scripture to the wife. Wives, submit to your own husbands. It simply means to adapt to, to respect, to pay honor to. Notice in verse 24, it says, should submit in everything to their husbands. This doesn't mean in everything that the husbands want them to submit to. It simply means in all spheres of life, the wife should be clothed with the dignity and the adorning of a wonderful, honoring, submissive spirit in acts that are illegal or immoral or in even unethical. She does not need to submit to her husbands. Colossians 3.18 tells us that. Wives are submit to their husbands in which is fitting in the Lord. There's been so much unfortunate and skewed teaching on this where wives have unfortunately been just the scorn of their husbands and they've turned into some sort of glorified mat to be walked upon. That is not what the Apostle Paul is speaking of. In fact, this is not an inferior role to the husband. This is a profound role. This takes tremendous grace, tremendous dignity. Why? Because he's, he gives us the example to Christ at the beginning of verse 24 as the church submits to Christ. So wives should submit in everything. So we have the object of Jesus Christ, ladies. You are to honor and submit to your husbands as we as individual believers and as a church wants to honor and adapt and submit and live in submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And so here, this is a submissive love. Submissiveness is part of what we do with each other. We want to honor each other in the body of Christ. We want to show preference to one another. But godly women within the home, what a great, a great attribute this is for the woman to do so. And then we see sacrificial love that we looked at in some detail last week for the husbands. Notice this in verse 25, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church, and then the key phrase, and gave himself up for her. What does it mean? Crucifixion, death. He surrendered his rights. And gentlemen, this is probably the hardest thing for us as men to overcome. As a sign of the fall, it's hard for women to honor and respect and submit to their husbands. As a sign of the fall, it's hard for men to humble themselves and love and live sacrificially to their wives. But yet this is what the work of the new community is. As regenerated people in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are to love her as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Sacrificial love. What does it mean? It means the surrendering of our rights. And I think that's hard for men. It's hard for any man to give up his rights and to say, Honey, I prefer you. I want to serve you. Your well-being, your care, your development, your spiritual maturity. 
I want to prefer you as our Lord Jesus Christ. Think of it. Men, as the example, our Lord left heaven's throne, humbled himself, came and put on flesh in the form of a servant so that he could be a servant to his Father's will in the redemption of those that he chose before the world began. And in the same way, brothers, we are to be servants to our wives. We are to live, as Peter says, in an understanding way with our wives so our prayers would not be hindered. Not only is this a sacrificial love, Notice here, it's a purifying love, brothers. In, in Ephesians 5 and in the very next verse, in verse 26, this is a wonderful truth that He might sanctify her. Now, this is speaking of Christ in the church having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word. Now, men, uh, lest you think you are the fourth member of the Trinity, you cannot sanctify your wife and overcome her sin issues. But we can say that true godly servant love from men to women ought to be a pure love, ought to be a purifying love. In other words, it ought to encourage her, pray for her, love her, uh, even exhort her if necessary to Christ's likeness when her heart veers from the faith. And the end result in verse 27, that Christ might present the church to Himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. In other words, a perfect church. We're far from it in this world, aren't we? We are new creations, but yet we live in unredeemed flesh. And therefore, we are sinners, yet those saved in need of grace, in need of forgiveness every day. But here one day that she might be holy and without blemish. That's speaking of the future in our glorification. So, Jesus died for us, gave Himself for us. Men, we are to love our wives and to place no value on our rights, but consider her chiefly among our servant leadership within the home. Again, the wife is the heart of the home. The man is the head of the home. And as we said last week, any home with two heads and no heart is a monstrosity, isn't it? We need both head and heart together. The man does not occupy a place of superiority over his wife. On the contrary, in Christ there is no male nor female, slave nor free, barbarian or Scythian. We are all in all in Jesus. But yet to create order, just like in society, we have policemen, we have government officials, we have presidents and congressmen. We honor the rule of law in the same thing within the church. We honor the rule of faith. And so, therefore, it's to create order and peace and honor, not only in society, but within our homes and families as well. So, in verse 28, in the same way, husbands should love their wives. He even becomes more intimate as their own bodies. No one ever hated their own body. No one purposely unless there's something else going on that's, that's wrong in someone's life, no one purposely destroys their own body. No one hurts their own body. If you love your wife, you will love yourself. No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it as Christ does the church because we are members of His body. So again, the woman's object is not the man, it's serving the Lord Jesus Christ. How does she do so? Clothed with honor and dignity and respect and submissiveness to her husband. 
The husband has his role as Jesus Christ, as he laid down his life, as he sanctifies the church, as he purchased us at Calvary, as he loves and nourishes and cherishes the church. Even now, according to Romans 8.34, he is in glory and he lives to make intercession for us. The work is still not done. Our Lord, every moment of every day, is praying for us. Isn't that wonderful? And isn't that a mystery? He saved us. And here we are being sanctified, conformed to the image of Christ every day. But yet one day we'll be glorified without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. This is a work of grace. We could say it this way. Christian marriage is two forgivers learning how to live together. Isn't that good? Christian marriage is two forgivers learning how to live together. I did not come up with that. That is from Ruth Bell Graham, Billy's wife, who's with the Lord. Uh, She said that, asked about Christian marriage, and with a little wink in her eye, that even the world's most famous evangelist needs grace to live with. And so 1 Peter 3 speaks of marriage as being co-heirs of the grace of life. Christian marriage is two forgivers learning how to live together. How is it that we live in forgiveness with one another is when we have a right view of what we have been forgiven of in Jesus Christ on the cross. He's forgiven us the great debt. It makes it easier to forgive the lesser debt with each other in our homes. And so here we see submissive love and then sacrificial love. This morning, in verses 31 to 33, we're going to see the last of these great profound loves, and this is sacred love. Sacred love. By way of introduction this morning, I just want to share my heart with you on what this love is, because this focuses entirely on the Lord Jesus Christ and His love for us. This is His love. It's a foreign love. It's an alien love. It's a love of another kind. It's a love the world never knew until Christ came and was born of a virgin and lived a sinless, holy life in front of wicked, sinful people that ultimately wanted to crucify Him. The Bible describes God with three main attributes. In John chapter 4, we're told that God is spirit. John 4, 24, and those that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. God is spirit. He is spirit. Second, we see in 1 John 1, 5 that God is light, that God is light. There is no darkness in Him whatsoever. Darkness in Scripture stands for that which is sinful and evil and occupies death. Light in Scripture stands for what is holy and good and the giving of life. God is light, meaning that He is the sum of all that is excellent. The sum of all of the highest of moral virtues and even goes higher. He is absolutely holy and there is no darkness in Him whatsoever. Lastly, in our passage here as well as in 1 John 4, 8, God is love. God is love. It is not simply that God loves but that God is love itself. And this is not simply a friendship love. This is not the love of sensuality between a man and a woman in the context of marriage. 
Love is not merely one of His attributes. It's at the very heart of His nature. He's a loving God. It goes to Him as not only being Creator, but Redeemer. The most famous verse in the world, God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. At the heart of our Lord, He is holy. He is just. He is true. He is righteous. But what drives Him for our salvation is not only that His holiness and justice and righteousness is satisfied by the perfect sacrifice of Jesus, but that He is a loving, redeeming Savior for us all. I just want to share a couple of things with you this morning on what this love is. Uh, number one, love is God's love is uninfluenced. It's uninfluenced. Meaning this, that we are simply the objects of His love. And there's nothing that we have done to prompt that or to attract that. Because in our heart of hearts, we do unlovely things. We are in our core being sinful by nature. He's holy, we are sinful. We could say that we, according to our own fleshly ways, are selfish creatures. We are unlovable thinking only of what benefits us. But the love of God is free. As one writer calls it, spontaneous, uncaused. He loves us just because He chooses to love us. Not because He looks down and sees something so wonderful and treasured and glorious in our lives and say, oh, I have to love that individual. No, He loves because that's who He is by nature. No wonder Paul said that he was the chief of sinners, but yet he was loved by God. It, one verse for you to write down, Deuteronomy 7, 7 and 8, it says, The Lord did not set His love upon you nor choose you because you were more in number than any other people, but you were the fewest of all people, but because the Lord loved you. Isn't that wonderful? He didn't love His covenant people because they were a greater nation than all other nations, because they had more people, because they were more righteous or more holy. He simply loved because He said, I chose to love you. I chose to love you. We love Him, John says, finish it, because He first loved us. God is always the initiator. Don't be fooled by this. We love Him because He initiated that love. He first loved us. We do not love Him, and then He responds with salvation. He's gifted us salvation. He has graced us with eternal life. He has given us the forgiveness of sins, even the faith to believe, according to Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, which is His gift of grace to us. We love Him only because He first loved us. No need for pride within the body of Christ for any sinner saved by His grace. God's love for me and for His own was entirely unmoved by anything in us. He simply did thus of His own sovereign free will and grace. His love is uninfluenced. Secondly, aren't you glad His love is eternal? It never ends. His love is eternal. Jeremiah 31.3 says, I've loved you with an everlasting love. With loving kindness, I have drawn you. Ephesians 1, we've seen this before in verses 4 and 5, that He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love having predestined us. 
even his sovereign election of a remnant people from this world is because of his love. His love's eternal. It's from everlasting to everlasting. Since he is God and God is eternal, nothing can ever destroy that everlasting love. Pastor Ed read that to us in Psalm 136 a few weeks ago. His loving kindness endures forever. We said it in all, I think, 26 verses. His loving kindness endures forever and ever. He loves His people. Thirdly, not only His love is uninfluenced and His love is eternal, His love is sovereign. His love is sovereign. God Himself is sovereign. He's under obligation to none to love any. Did you hear that this morning? He's under no obligation to love anyone except that He does this out of His own goodness and sovereign, sovereignty and reaching down to sinful people because God is God. He does what his, He pleases. He's no respecter of persons. God is love and He loves whom He pleases. Romans 9, 19, we looked at this last year. Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Was there something more precious about Jacob than Esau? No. In fact, according to Jewish tradition, Esau, the firstborn, should have been more greatly loved by God than, than Jacob. But God set his goodness upon Jacob. I'm going to love you with an everlasting love. And he loved him faithfully, but Esau, before the children were born, it says, Esau I have hated. They had the same parents. They were born at the same time. In fact, Jacob was holding on to Esau's ankle as they were coming out of the womb. But here, Jacob I loved. Esau I hated. Why? Simply it pleased God to do so. Number four, God's love is infinite. It's uninfluenced. It's sovereign. God's love is eternal, but his love is infinite. Everything about God is infinite. It's infinite. The psalmist says his es essence fills the heavens and the earth. His power is unbounded. Nothing can thwart God. He's in the heavens, the psalmist says. He does whatever he pleases to do. I love it in Ephesians 2.4, but God who is rich in mercy for His great love wherewith He loved us. God looked at our depravity. He looked at our sinfulness. He looked at our rebellion. And yet He reached down into this world through Jesus Christ, through His infinite love and redeemed a people for Himself. And that love knows no bounds and it passes all knowledge. Fifthly, his love is immutable. What do we mean by that? Immutable. It means it never changes. In Hebrews 13, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and for how long? Forevermore. We speak of the immutability of God, he's immutable, he does not change. He remains the same. He's not like us who are influenced with the trends and the tides and the fads of any generation, whether it be style or values or priorities in life. He remains constant. 
He does not change, and so His love does not change. James 1.17 says there's no variableness, no shadow of turning in God. Therefore, His love never changes. You never have to worry about this. You never have to worry, does He love me less today or more tomorrow based on what I've done or what I haven't done? Are you the wanderer, the sinner, the pretender? Does He still love me? Yes. Are you redeemed by God? Yes. If you've come to Him in faith and you are His child through redemption that is in Jesus Christ, you have the confidence of knowing His love never changes. Beloved, what hope and encouragement that is, isn't it? What grace we have. What wonderful hope we have. He never ceases to love us. John 13, 1, Jesus said even to His own apostles that He loved them to the uttermost. Now, there was one apostle that betrayed Him, Judas. It did not include Him. God's love is not indiscriminate without exception to all people of all places. It is through Jesus Christ that His love is known. I tell non-believers all the time when witnessing to them, and it's good to remind them, not that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. That's not where the gospel begins. But God is holy and has a plan for your life. If you want to know His eternal love and grace, repent of your sin and come by faith in Jesus Christ, and you'll know it. His love doesn't change. His love is the same. Nothing Paul says in Romans 8, can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Boy, if you're wondering about sure footing for tomorrow's struggles, here it is. Sure footing for victory over your sin and trial and addictions, here it is. It's the immutable, never-changing love of God. Just two more things or three. God's love is holy. God's love is holy. There's nothing shady about His love. There's nothing sinful about His love. There's nothing of mere sentiment. God is not some sort of divine suitor waiting for us, biting His nails to see who's going to repent and who's not. No, again, we love Him because He first loved us. He came to us we must then respond in humble repentance and submission to Him. He is not waiting for us as some sort of frustrated suitor on who's going to be His bride forever. God is love. His love is holy. Grace reigns through righteousness. You cannot separate God out and say, One part is His love and one part is His righteousness and one part of His holiness. Listen, His love is holy. His love is just. His love is righteous because there is no variance or turning with God. We cannot edit who God is and edit His truth. 
Hebrews 12, 6, and the Lord loves those who he chastens, and he scourges every son whom he receives. How do you know you're not an illegitimate child? God will chasten those who he loves, just as a father loves his own child and must discipline that child for a time. If your living in your heart is directed to waywardness and love with the far country, the Lord will chasten you. Why? Because it's out of his love that he's bringing a correction to your life so that you may be conformed to the image of Jesus, and it proves that we're not illegitimate children. His love does not tolerate my sin. His love saves me from it and gives me victory through it. His love is holy. Beloved, His love is gracious. Let's end with this. His love is gracious. Love and favor, love and grace, they're together in Scripture. Romans 8 what love is from that can not be separated from us. The design and the scope and the merits of His love is a benevolent mercy and grace to us because His love was giving His Son as a propitiation for our sin. What we see on the cross when Jesus took our sin and the guilt and the penalty and the very wrath of God against him against us placed on Christ. It was not only the public display according to Romans 3 of His righteousness, but it was His eternal love for those that He came to say through the suffering and the penalty and the demands of the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. His love is so gracious it took a sacrifice for our sin a sacrifice for our sin. Therefore, we can say with John the Baptist, he must increase, I must decrease because of the great love with which he loved us. You know, there's some great love songs in the world, but there's no greater love song than O sacred head thou wounded. There's no greater love song than my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and His righteousness. This is the love of Calvary. And it's the love that saves, restores, reconciles, and gives victory to His people so that we are now in the Beloved because we are in Jesus Christ. This is a foreign love. This is an alien love. No man can do this kind of love. This is the love of God that is not merited. It's not earned. It's not because we are worthy of it. It's unfailing. It's unreciprocated. It is sacrificial. This is the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Aren't you grateful for this love today, Beloved? Aren't you grateful? This is the love of God. We're going to close with a wonderful modern-day hymn. It's a 200-year-old lyric or 150-year-old lyric, but I thank the Lord for uh, the, the brothers at Sovereign Grace Ministries for putting such a beautiful melody to it before the throne of God. We have a priest whose name is love. He saves us. He redeems us. He will glorify us. 
He welcomes us. We're sinners in and of ourselves, but yet He has marked us for His own possession. What a wonderful hope that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is love of another kind. So let's go to our text this morning. What does sacred love look like? Let's look at it together. Here is the sacred love of Scripture. Wives and husbands, here's the mystery. Why marriage? Why is it that we can say with all eternal authority that what the Supreme Court did just a few weeks ago in saying that procreation is not essential for family, that children don't need to be part of the mix, and that marriage has now been redefined as simply between two anything that are in love. A man and a man, a woman and a woman. They have taken off, as it were, the cords of righteous living and have tried to redefine what God has set in motion even before the fall. We saw that last week, Genesis 2. Marriage was defined before sin entered the world. It is by God. No man can reverse an ordinance of God and not pay the consequence. And may I say with love in my heart, our nation, if it has not been before this, it is now under God's judgment and we need to repent as a nation. 53 million children ripped from the wombs of their mothers. That's not love. Lighting up the White House after that legislation was passed and the rainbow colors isn't it ironic God's rainbow set in the sky that He would never destroy the earth again with a flood? It was a covenantal promise and the sign of the covenant, the rainbow given to Noah. But yet man perverts what God has declared holy and the White House is lit up in rainbow colors celebrating gay marriage. Listen, that is not freedom. That's judgment. And we should not stutter when we talk about it. Sacred love. It's a holy love. Let's look at it here together this morning. Go with me, please, to Revelation 21 and verse 9. As we looked at the book of Revelation for two years here, Revelation chapter 21 and verse 9, and it gives us an, a little bit of an insight as to what this kind of love is. Revelation chapter 21 and verse 9. Notice this. This is what he says of his people. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, Come, I will show you the bride. Notice this phrase. The wife of the Lamb. The wife of the Lamb. If you don't have that underlined, could I encourage you to do so this morning? Who are you in Jesus Christ? We're His bride. He's the divine husband of the church. We're His bride. We are the wife of the Lamb. And again, I've already read it this morning, Jeremiah 31.3, He's loved us with an everlasting love. From Old Testament to New Testament, this is the unfettered, undisturbed love of God for His own people, ultimately secured through Jesus Christ on the cross. This is a sacred, holy love. 
the wife of the Lamb. What great, what great words. I'll show you the bride. The bride of Christ. The husbandry of Jesus Christ. The righteous. This is who our Lord is. This is the hope that we have in Him. This is the kind of love that never fades away. This is the kind of love that endures. This is the love of another kind. This is the kind of love that we want to honor in the Lord Jesus Christ through all things. This is the love that, that we celebrate here this morning. As Paul said in Ephesians 3.19, to know the love of Christ that surpasses all understanding that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. This is a love in the modern day vernacular that just blows your mind. No one could comprehend this love. No one could invent this kind of love. We've seen the kind of love that men invent. Do good things to earn the kind of love that will get you in good keeping with the holy God. All religion except for Christianity is works righteousness, is human achievement. That's what men consider to be true and loving. Even in personal relationships, I'll love you if you love me. And it's an exchange program rather than true godly sacrificial love. As a friend of mine said years ago, the Beatles said, all you need is love, and then they broke up. What kind of love is that? That's not real love. Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young define love from a humanistic point of view. Love the one you're with. If I can't be with the one I love, I'm going to love the one I'm with. What? That's just a license for playing around, right? There's no love in that. That's the kind of love that man invents. But listen, when we worship the God who is love, the God who's created marriage, the God who has made us both male and female, then we get to celebrate in praise and worship as we've done this morning and sing to the King, for He is the hope for the sinner, the restored, the restoration for the fallen, the reconciliation for the wayward, and the comfort for the afflicted and the tried, and His sustaining grace gives us and merits that love for us in our lives. What a great Lord we serve. We need no other reason than to be here for worship than to celebrate the great love of God of which we have in Jesus Christ. Can I show you some verses this morning that speak of that heavenly betrothal of what He has for His people? Uh, Hosea chapter 2 and in verse 19 and 20. Hosea chapter 2. Here's the love of God for His people. And he speaks of it in the most compassionate and loving way. You know the story of Hosea. He's a prophet in the land. He's saying, thus says the Lord. He's preaching. He's giving people the Word of God. And God tells him to marry a prostitute named Gomer. Now you would have thought just the name Gomer would have been repulsive enough. But he says, no, go and marry this prostitute named Gomer. Now, he's doing this because he wants to reflect his covenant love for a wayward, whoring people of Israel. Some have asked me in recent weeks, gearing up to this passage, do you think Hosea was a real story? Do you think, how could a prophet of God, one who ministers the Word of God, marry a woman that isn't living for God? 
How could someone do that? A prostitute, nonetheless, that over a period of a few years at least had a couple of children due to her temple prostitution. Could you imagine this man, Hosea, being out there on the streets proclaiming God's Word, even maybe heralding the gospel of repentance there in Old Testament language to those at the temple, and they have his wife, and she is sleeping with others openly as an act of worship to the pagan deities. She's having children born by these sojourners, by these travelers. They're giving her money for her services. And yet, he's proclaiming the Word of God. He is saying, thus says the Lord. He's a prophet in the land. No, this was not a parable. This was not a made-up story. People always say in matters of eternity, we get romantic about this, but won't it be great I'll be able to finally meet Paul or I'd love to meet Abraham or maybe Moses or Elijah and talk to him about the great stories. Listen, I want to meet Hosea. I want to meet Hosea. This was a real man with a real wife who was a prostitute under the command of God who said, go marry this woman. She's having children by others. And he goes at the end of the story and he buys her back. Can you imagine the story circulating? The prophet paid money for a prostitute. He didn't consider his own image, his own comfort, his own personality, the gossip and the talk of people. He obeyed God. He lived for the Lord. And he says, you're going to be faithful to me. And it was a sign of God's, no question, a sign of God's love for his people. Look at this love in Hosea chapter 2. And verses 19 and 20. There's the backstory of that story of Hosea and, and Gomer, but look at how God refers to them. He says, And I will betroth you to me forever. A wayward people, a sinful people. I'm going to betroth you to me forever. Notice, he's not asking a response to them. He's simply saying, I'm calling you. You're going to be my betrothed, my bride. I will betroth you to me, notice this, in righteousness, that's holiness, in justice, that's truth, in steadfast love, that's salvation, and in mercy. There's the pardoning of sin. a sacred love, I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. And notice how he ends it, and you shall know the Lord. Look at those five characteristics again. Righteousness, justice, steadfast love, mercy, faithfulness. That's how God loves. That's how God loves you, loves me. What love could we ever forsake the one that has done this? To the unjust, He's made us just. To those that lived in falsehood, He's given us His truth. To those that are wayward, and listen, if we're honest this morning, in thought, word, or deed, we sin every day. David warns in Psalm 19 against three kinds of sin. Secret sin. It's stuff that only you know about. No one else. Only God sees it. It's usually the desires of the heart, the thoughts of the mind. 
Lord, keep me from secret sin. Keep me from presumptuous sin, the sins of personal relationship, from violating those rules and those cares for each other as individuals. We wrong someone. We need to go make it right. It takes time to do this sometimes, beloved. For in the church, we don't simply make accusations. We work towards reconciliation. Satan is the accuser. Christians ought to work together out of a sense of love. If you've wronged someone or if you've been wrong, we don't want to keep a record of wrongs. We'll see this morning, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, our love is a patient love. It's an enduring love for each other. Amputation is not a spiritual gift. Someone has hurt your feelings. Someone has wronged you in the church. Someone is a Christian friend or even a family member. Doesn't live in Palm City. Lives outside. Goes to another church. Lives in another state. You have no right to amputate them from your life. Reconciliation. God's love is not retributive. It's restorative. What a love And so he says here, to our sinful hearts, it's a steadfast love. Not he didn't reward us according to our sin, but according to his mercy. And then he says, I betrothed you to me in faithfulness. He's faithful to us. He is never a wayward God, a faithful God, holy God. And I love this. And he says, and you shall know the Lord. To a wayward Israel, An Israel that's acting like a prostitute, an Israel that's whoring her wares, you will know me. I will betroth you. This is the kind of love he's given to this. If you think that's just an Old Testament concept, go with me here to the New Testament, 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 2. Here are the apostles using this same language when it comes to us as Christians. He's speaking here of the love of Christ to us. And he says in 2 Corinthians 11 and verse 2, he says, I feel a divine jealousy for you. Do you ever feel that for each other? A divine jealousy? That's a good thing. You love someone so much, you just want to see them succeed. You want to see them be victorious in their Christian life. You want to see them live Not one step up and two steps back, but in victory every day. A divine jealousy. I want to see you grow in your walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to see you do great things for the kingdom. And he says, since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. Wow, what what love is that? There's the apostolic pastoral love of Paul for those that he was ministering to, just like a wayward Israel. Notice this is in the city of of the place of the Corinthian church. This was a wicked place. This is with a, a church that got into all kinds of chaos and turmoil and sin. And he says, I have a divine jealousy for you. I betrothed you to one husband, speaking of Jesus Christ to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. They were wicked. They were sinful. Only the blood of Jesus can make someone pure. This is the betrothing heart of God. 
Let's go back to the Old Testament again. Isaiah, prophet Isaiah. This is some of my favorite verses, y'all, in the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 49, verses 15 and 16. I love these verses. And again, we're going to sing it in just a moment. You'll recognize this in saying that. Isaiah chapter 49, verses 15 and 16. Here's the heart for God, for His people. This is a loving, holy God. And mind you, beloved, lest we forget to say it this morning, if need be, God in His holiness could have left us to our sin. He would be absolutely perfect and just as just and righteous and faithful if He came to redeem no one but sanctioned us all to a living hell forever. He is God. He can do that. He is free from sin, free from error. There is no adulteration in His assessment. He sees us for who we are, sinners in need of grace. And He could have just said, I'm going to leave you to your sinfulness and sanction you to an eternal hell forever. And He would be worshipped, as it were, praised for being just and holy and righteous. But He didn't do that. He looked upon us with the benevolence of heaven, with the mercy and grace of only God could. And he says in verse 15, Can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of the womb? Even these may forget. Yet I will not forget you. A mother may forget the child she's nursed. Some tragedy in the family's occurred and that son is like dead to her. He says, you might be forgotten by the mother that nursed you, but I will never forget you. How does he remember this? Notice this in verse 16. I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. This is prophetic for the cross. He's engraved us in the palms of his hands there at Calvary's tree. And when he says here, your walls are continually before me, your builders make haste, your destroyers and those who laid waste go out from you. But he's a God of restoration. Lift your eyes around and see. They all gather. They come to you. As I live, declares the Lord, you shall put them all on as an ornament. You shall bind them on as a bride does. Here's covenantal love. Here's marital love in the spiritual realm. He's engraved us on the palms of His hands. He bears those marks to this day. It's a sacred love. It's a holy love. If we can, let's go to part of our text now out of Ephesians chapter 5 this morning. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 31 32 and 33. Here he's quoting out of Genesis 2. He's giving the original ceremony for marriage. This is before the fall. Marriage is a good thing, even for non-believers. It's given as a creation ordinance. A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. There's the perfect definition of marriage and the marriage ceremony. I love it when doing marriage ceremonies. It's a great place to proclaim the gospel. The week of October 3rd, or that weekend, I will not be here because 
my oldest son, Max, is getting married, and he asked me to do the marriage service for him. I, I told Max the other day, I said, son, um, I'll probably have to stop somewhere during the ceremony and say, usually people are praying for the bride and groom. Will you please pray for the dad? I don't know if I'll get through it. But, you know, this is a, a great thing that they become one flesh. I love telling a man and a woman after they've said their vows and they've exchanged rings, I usually turn to their groom and say, you may now minister to your wife. You may kiss her as long as you want. And boy, they go after it. It's wonderful to see, isn't it? I love it. I love it. Even in Reformed Baptist churches, it's a good thing to kiss passionately your bride. They become one flesh. Here's the, here's the sacred love of Jesus Christ. This mystery is profound. Notice what Paul's saying. I'm saying that this refers to Christ and the church. This is why marriage can only be between a man and a woman. You can't have the mystery of the love of the bride and then the eternal bridegroom, the husband, who loves us with divine jealousy. You can't have that between a man and a man or a woman and a woman. God doesn't sanction that. The Supreme Court should know better. They cave to political pressure. That's not love. That's acquiescence. Love is between one man and one woman. They leave father. They leave mother. They're joined together. They leave, they cleave, and then they weave for the rest of their lives on this earth. They become one flesh. You cannot have a one flesh union in a gay relationship because a one flesh union is demonstrative of Jesus Christ and the intimacy of the church. There's a mystery. And that's why, beloved, in our day, if we're going to be bold about the gospel, we have to be bold about Christian marriage. We have to be bold and not be sympathetic as one man who's running for president. I won't say his name on the Republican ticket, but God forbid that you should support him. But said, you know what? I have gay friends. I went to a gay marriage. Everything was good. They love each other, and the audience applauded. He claims to know himself as a Christian. That's not biblical love. That's political expediency. You fear God, you love one another, but you first fear God. And the only way to rightly love your neighbor who might be gay is to lovingly, with grace-filled words and with honor and respect, share with them the gospel. And the marital union between a man and a woman represents the mystery between Jesus Christ and the church. That word mystery means a truth hidden in the old covenant, now made visible in the new. Jesus Christ came. He not only redeemed Jews that were called and chosen ahead of time by Him in His, in His eternal love, but also Gentiles. And now we're brought into one household of faith made up of both Jew and Gentile, the Israel of God, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul is using this great example of Jesus and the church as the mystery of a bride, of the fidelity of love between a man and a woman. And he says, I'm speaking this, this is a mystery of Christ and the church. Beloved, the marital relationship is the gospel in a physical living parable. It's the bridegroom marking out a betrothed remnant for his own possession in faithfulness, in mercy, 
in justice and steadfast love in righteousness full of grace and truth. Do you see it here? This is why culture's wrong. I put it up on Facebook last night. The gospel is always countercultural. We have to understand that. They hated the master, they will hate us. And if they don't hate us, we're not living like the master. Dangerous thing to play politics with God. And so he says at the end of this is a punctuation in verse 33. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Why? It represents the mystery of Christ and the church. Why is it that I could never perform a gay marriage ceremony here? It's because it represents the mystery of Christ in the church. It's not that we don't want to be loving towards gay people that don't know Jesus. We need to go to them. We need to love them. To the transgender community, we need to go to them. We need to share the gospel with them. But that doesn't mean we cower under cultural pressure and fail to honor the Lord Jesus Christ with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We need to protect the unity of the church, but the unity of the church is built on the truth of the gospel and is rooted in Jesus Christ. Christian colleges, Christian churches are now radically altering their statements of faith to accommodate gay marriage. Shame on them. Those are not true gospel-centered churches. They need to be called to repentance. But here we honor Christian marriage. We honor the fidelity of love in a man and a woman. We honor the one flesh union between that man and a woman. And we honor that marital covenant, a man leaving his father and mother and a woman coming together with that man. Why? Because this is Christ in the church. That's how reverent marriage is. That's how holy and sacred marriage is. As we close this morning, Solomon says, in Song of Solomon. In fact, let's just turn there for some of these verses here at the end. Song of Solomon, chapter 8 and verse 6. Song of Solomon. I just have it listed here as song. I couldn't fit it all in the slide, but Song of Solomon, chapter 8 and verse 6. I love using this even in marital vows. Set me as a seal upon your heart. Who has the Lord sealed us with? The Holy Spirit. It's a sign of His love for us. And here He's saying, set me as a seal upon your heart. Let my love be sealed with myself, with my commitment to you, as a seal upon your arm. For love is strong as death, and jealousy is fierce as the grave. Its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, it would be utterly despised. What is he saying? To quote the theology of John Lennon, you can't buy me love. Can't buy me love. Money's a poor substitute for it. It's sacrificial. You give your life to that person. He's giving himself for us. Many waters can't quench that kind of love. 
How, how strong was that love of Christ for us? Go with me to the book of Hebrews chapter 12 and verses 1 and 2. Again, very familiar verses. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. The writer of Hebrews says, We're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. Let's also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. There are things that trip us up. We have to reduce those. We have to get rid of those. We can't run effectively with those kind of weights, obstacles, hurdles. And then sin, we have to repent of it. We can't negotiate with it. And let us run with endurance, hupomone, perseverance, the race that is set before us. Who's our example? Here's the gospel, beloved. Charles Spurgeon, in his wonderful testimony, he said, I heard gospel presentations for years, but he says, they forgot to tell me to look to Jesus. The writer here has not forgotten. He says, look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, the founder, the archegos, the captain of salvation, the author and finisher, the beginning and the end of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despised the shame, and now is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Victory, love, betrothal, marital fidelity, all in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ for how He came and redeemed us as His people. The joy was set before Him of resurrection, of restoration, of reconciling lost people to Himself. He endured the cross and He despised the shame. That's love. That's love. Lastly, this morning, the most familiar chapter on love found anywhere in the Bible, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 1 to 13. Just going to read it. We won't explain it. As you're turning there, think of 1 Peter 4, 8. He says, you are to love each other continually because love covers a multitude of sins. That's a principle I've tried to teach my kids since they were knee-high to a grasshopper. When the Bible speaks of love covering a multitude of sins, it's not speaking of forgiveness. It's speaking of who has knowledge of one's sin. An unloving person gossips about someone. They just can't wait to get the last little morsel on someone's life. And then they do the Christian thing. They gossip. They just love getting on the grace vine and calling Christians and just talking it up. Love covers a multitude of sin. It protects, listen, it protects who has knowledge of the scope of someone's failings. Husbands, you broadcast stuff about your wife, shame on you. Protect her. You're not lying to people if you do so. You're loving your wife. Is that clear this morning? Love doesn't broadcast someone's sin. Love seeks to help them through it and covers it and seeks for restoration. 
Wives, don't use your husband's failing as an opportunity to gossip, to try to incur sentimental favor so you're building a case against your husband. Love covers that thing. Love covers it. Love protects the knowledge of who has, has access to the sinfulness that goes on maybe with your spouse, with your children. How much more with the body of Christ? That's not love to broadcast. That's evil. It's sin. And people feel justified in it. They think it's a spiritual gift. Shame on them. Shame on them for making their favorite conversation and the chatter of their lives someone's struggle. Have we forgotten how we have been saved? Have we forgotten what Jesus has done with our sin? He separates us from the east, from the west, and He holds it behind His back. He throws it to the bottom of the sea, and I love this, and He's omniscient. He remembers our sin no more. Aren't you glad? Then why is it that we make Geraldo-esque tasty morsels about someone else's failings. I don't understand this, beloved. We need to stop it. Paul says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, and I have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. I'm just a garbage can buttoned up against another one. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have all faith as to remove mountains and have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all that I have, if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Here's love. It's patient. It's kind. It does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing. It rejoices with the truth. In other words, it doesn't keep a record of wrongs. We're not marking it down on such and such a date. This guy offended me here. This lady offended me here. My child did this. My wife did this. My husband did this. It doesn't keep a record of wrongs. It rejoices with the truth. How much is love for us? What's the premium that God places on biblical love? It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. It never fails. Prophecies, they'll pass away. Tongues, they will cease. Knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, speaking of the return of Christ, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. Wouldn't you wish that would happen every day in the church? You know how children are. They're impetuous. They're based on fear. They react. They don't act. They love to talk. They love to blame. They love to cast guilt. Paul says, when I became a man... Grow up, in other words. Man up. I gave up childish ways. I put that stuff aside. 
For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face, I know in part. Then, when we're glorified, I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Dear Lord Jesus, we thank You for this love of another kind. Oh Lord, forgive us for being wayward people. Forgive us, Lord, for justifying our gossip of others. We forget that You came and loved us with a sacred love, a holy love. Lord, if we see a brother or sister in Christ struggling in an area of sin, may it not be that the first impulse of our hearts to gossip, to pull away, to leave, to disinvolve fellowship. May our first impulse be, hey, wait, that's a sinner in need of restoration. I'll go there. I'll risk the rough water for that one. You did. That's how we got in. We'll honor You. We'll take the jeerings and the comments and the gossip and the insults for someone that You love, for someone that's struggling because it could be us next time. No wonder Paul says, if you see someone overcoming a sin, go and restore such a one and do it with meekness and humility because we must examine ourselves to see if we're sinful also. And the answer is yes, none of us can cast the stone. And so, Lord, may we put on Christ this week with others, other Christians, other family members, other churches. May we love as You've wanted us to love because we have a high priest who is love, who makes intercession for us, who has fully redeemed us, but yet prays for us still because, Lord, You know the trials and the temptations and the pull of the world, the flesh and the devil is massive on our lives. And we cannot live the Christian life on our own. Live it we must, but it's only by Your grace. Yours is an everlasting love. So, Lord, as Your bride, as the wife of the Lamb this morning, may we love others. We are the cross church. May we be known, Lord, not just for the right gospel and for right theology and good preaching and good singing by the body and fellowship and service together, may we be known that, man, if you want to know what love is, go there. If you want to know what restoration is, go there. If you're struggling, go there. If you're struggling with sin, go there. They won't turn you out. They won't talk about you. They will walk with you through the rough water. They will be there for you. They will show Jesus to you. They will not amputate you. They will not make fun of you. They will not exercise religious pride and think that no longer will I fellowship there because you've come. No. Lord, may they know 
that they can find hope here, the gospel here, grace here. It doesn't wink at sin. That love doesn't tolerate sin. But it's the kind of love that is restorative and risks the, the hurting flames and the pounding waves of sin trying to disrupt another brother or sister in their life. This is not cheap grace. It's costly because the bride is Jesus Christ the righteous. So, Lord, may a dying world hear that. May our church grow because of that. May people come here because they can celebrate that, the mystery of Christ and the church, the husband, the wife, the family. Oh, Lord, make a difference in our human relationships this week. We love you because you first loved us. It's in the name of Jesus we pray.